Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Last, last week was officially the start of the Advent season, uh, but because it was the last Sunday of November and uh, um, Mac Holt was preaching, we waited until this week to officially start my Advent uh, sermon series because this is the first uh, Sunday of the month and, and I think we should probably uh, acknowledge that we have entered into finally the final month of the longest, craziest year of our lives. Uh, just for fun, I uh, looked back on my calendar uh, for this weekend of last year just to see what I was up to, and it was insane. Uh, be- between my sons, uh, total, we attended uh, four of their basketball games. Uh, I also went to the UK basketball game in a packed, sold-out Rupp Arena, uh, preached an Advent sermon to two packed rooms. Uh, Mid-December last year, we were at just over 900 in attendance here on a Sunday morning, if you could even imagine that now. Um, after church, went to lunch with some friends to a busy restaurant where we had to wait among a lot of people for our table. Then that Sunday night, I attended my first of many Christmas parties in a packed home full of uh, laughter and feasting. It was quite the weekend. Uh, fast forward to this weekend, and I did absolutely nothing. Nothing. I had to invent things to do yesterday. Youth sports are canceled. Uh, Kentucky basketball, they're going to play this afternoon in an empty arena with nobody there. Um, I'm preaching to a sporadically attended room of uh, mask-covered faces. I'm not going to a restaurant after this, and there will be no Christmas party tonight or, I suppose, any night this month. We've said it countless times this year, but it does bear repeating This is all just so surreal. This time last year, as we were, you know, entering into Advent season full of joy and excitement, busyness, nobody in their wildest dreams could have ever imagined what was before us. And yet, as Mac alluded to in his sermon last week, if you heard it, perhaps this is the most honest season of Advent we have ever experienced. You know what I wasn't doing last year? I wasn't longing. I was busy. I was distracted. I was celebrating. I was doing a lot of things. But the one thing I wasn't wasn't doing was waiting. Now this year we wait. No choice but to wait for the return of normalcy. 
And that, and the longer, the longer we wait, the more restless we become. And what I'm suggesting is that this restless waiting is Advent in its truest sense. This is meant to be a season of struggle. An, an aching for the advent of our Lord, the return of our Lord. And just about the only thing that could get our culture into that posture is what has transpired this year. And so what I'm trying to say is I don't want to waste this moment and pretend that it's something other than it is. I don't want to patronizingly uh, pretend that this is just Christmas as usual and let's just pretend like none of this is going on. Instead, I want to face the restlessness, and let it be our guide into the truest heart of Advent. So our Advent theme is long-expected Savior. God's people have always, always lived as an expectant people, a people forced to wait upon the Lord to deliver upon His promise of Advent, a people who are discontent with the way things are and are longing and praying For the Lord to deliver upon his promises. But this reality is difficult for American Christians. Our culture is not a culture of expectation, but of gratification. And we're all guilty. Except for this year. This year, all of us are forced to wait. So let's make use of this historic moment. And let it train us in the ways of dissatisfaction, of restlessness... Of yearning. Each of my sermons this month will be from a conventional Christmas passage, but then what I've decided to do is I've added a revelation passage. And what I want us to do is, yes, celebrate that Jesus has come, but more than that, look forward in expectation to his return. I want his first advent to only deepen our hunger for his second advent. But what are we seeking in that hunger? So many things, but I've chosen three in particular. Three that maybe necessarily don't get the attention that normally they deserve in the Christmas season. A little bit unconventional. Three things that were inaugurated in the first advent of Jesus, but will be consummated in the second advent. And like I said, the first one this morning, it may surprise you. But it's one that has been pressing in on me deeply this year. You know what I'm really longing for? I am longing for the end of Satan and his tyranny. I'm longing for the dragon to be slayed. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you believe that? It's in your Bible, but do you believe it? Do you believe that beyond all the evil and strife that we can see and gets all the attention on news and social media, do you believe that beyond all that evil and strife that we can see is a far greater evil and strife that goes unseen? I do. The longer I'm in ministry, the more keenly aware I am of it. The more I understand things, the more I believe in realities that I can't fully understand. And for whatever reason, while our world suffers at the hands of so many visible enemies, I have strangely found myself more aware of the invisible enemy. What does Advent mean in the heavenly realm? What does the birth of Jesus and the return of Jesus mean for the greatest enemy of Jesus? 
What it means is that Jesus will finally enact his great retribution. A retribution that we are all longing to see, whether we know it or not. So I'm going to do it this way. The Matthew passage, his first advent, we're going to look at the first retribution. The Revelation passage, we're going to look at his final retribution. Let's start with his first advent, the first act of his retribution against the evil one. Now, before we get to the passage, let me briefly start with the Old Testament passage that Amy read. This set the stage for the the true battle of history. Of course, humanity plays a leading role in the story, but there is so much more going on here. This is a cosmic battle of good and evil. This is Satan's greatest attempt to sabotage not just God's intentions for creation, but to sabotage God's very essence and glory. Adam and Eve, in the story that was read, are simply pawns in a seemingly brilliant plot of the evil one. Let me explain. Genesis 3, Satan enters into a thus far perfect story and attacks God's image bearers. He tempts, he lies, he lies, he deceives. He promises that the very fruit God commanded them not to eat is the fruit that they must have. And so, as you know, they give in to the lie and they partake in that which is forbidden. But this is what you need to see. Ultimately, this was not a satanic attack against us, but against God. An attempt at God's very undoing. How so? Well, now Satan, it would seem, has God trapped. In effect, our sin that he led us into, he tempted us into, in effect, our sin has now pitted the love of God and the justice of God against each other. Satan has no power, of course no power, against God. But Satan does have the weapon of his accusations. He is called the great accuser for a reason. He is the weapon of his accusations, and our sin is his ammunition. Having deceived and tempted humanity into sin, here now is the accusation of the great accuser. God, are you not just? If so, then you must do what is right and just and condemn your fallen image bearers. But I know you won't do that because, God, you are love. Your unfailing love cannot fail, or can it? And so this is the essence of the accuser's accusation. Choose your compromise. Will it be God's justice or God's love that he has covenanted with man and promised? Either way, God will compromise his immutability, the eternal, unchanging nature of God. God's response. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Yes, Satan, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. An offspring of Eve will fix what seems to be unfixable. And with that promise begins the long-expected wait for the coming seed who will deliver God's retribution against Satan. Now, Matthew 1. An angel of the Lord. Side note, notice how present the heavenly realm is in all of the birth narratives of Jesus. Heaven's just breaking through everywhere, meaning this moment has implications that go far beyond earth. This is a big moment in the heavens. 
Angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The seed of this woman is from the Holy Spirit. It's from God. This is the promised seed of God. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, remember, sin is the problem. Sin is the ammunition of Satan's accusations. If this offspring of Mary is able to save his people from their sins, then Satan's accusations are disarmed. He is defeated. But how is that possible? Chances are you familiar with the answer of how he saves us from our sins, but are you familiar with it through the lens of this great cosmic battle? You know, meaning this, you know that this baby was born to die. You've heard countless Christmas messages about that, and they're all true. But why? For you and me? Yes. A thousand times, yes. But let us not overestimate our significance in the greater story. This story is ultimately about God. His glory, his conquest in the heavenly realms, the vindication of his justice and his love. We are benefactors of that triumph, the glad spoils of his victory. But first and foremost, the Son of God comes to rescue the glory of God. And that conquest was a costly conquest. The seed's heel must be bruised for the serpent's head to be bruised. So the mystery that confounded Satan was that through the suffering of the seed, it would be the serpent that is defeated. God's long-awaited retribution against sin fell not on us, the sinners, not on Satan who tempted, but upon himself. And that twist in the battle story between God and Satan is how God is now able to vindicate both his justice and love. He himself took the justice that we deserve in order to grant us the love that we do not deserve, to use the language of the Puritans, God's justice and love kiss on the cross. And so the announcement, call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Yes, of course, that's good news to us. But it is simultaneously the news of our salvation and Satan's annihilation. For in view of the atoning work of the Savior, what has Satan left? What can he do? What card can he play? His great scheme has been foiled. His accusations have no substance, which is why Paul sums it all up like this in Colossians 2. Our sin has been nailed to the cross. And in this way, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. The Savior's shameful death put Satan to shame. All Satan had in his arsenal was our sin and his accusations. But when our sin died with Jesus, so too did his accusations. He is disarmed. And yet, as good as that news is, it is not the fullness of retribution that heaven and earth longs to see. We don't merely want a disarmed Satan. We want a destroyed Satan. That too is promised. So for centuries upon centuries, 
God's people waited for the long-expected Savior to disarm the great accuser. Now in this season of Advent that has been appointed to us, we wait upon the long-expected return of Jesus to destroy our great accuser. Let's turn there to Revelation and see the final retribution. Now, I haven't preached much from Revelation, so let me give it a word real quick before we get into the passage. Revelation, if you've ever given it a try, you, you know this, is of course a very confusing part of Scripture. It is apocalyptic literature, which is a whole other genre um, that demands a whole other way of interpretation. So, as I read the passage, you could tell it's filled with heightened imagery and symbolism and allegorical elements. The best way to understand Revelation is that it tells the story of redemptive history from, his, from heaven's vantage point. So basically, the entire Bible that you have is the story of God's redemption from our vantage point. Revelation is the story of it from the vantage point of heaven. So it peels back the veil between heaven and earth and lets us in on the realm of the unseen. So after all that we've said thus far, now listen to these verses and see if they make more sense. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. It's um, this imagery of, of glory. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars, the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the first expectation. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. This is history's expectation for the first advent of the Messiah, the glorious people of God in agony as they await the birth of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, from Genesis 3. All right, verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads, ten horns, on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this is the evil one who fell from heaven, taking a third of the heavenly hosts with him, and now is fixated on one thing, devouring that promised seed of Genesis 3 that he knows would be his undoing. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, Christmas. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But instead of going straight into that rule... Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Christ's ascension. The accomplished salvation is exalted on high, reigning, ruling upon the throne of God until he comes again. And now we find ourselves here in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, had a pl- she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This is where we are. We exist within the place prepared by God, his church, being nourished and sustained by God within his church, awaiting the end of this restless season of exile and the return of our Jesus. Now, to be clear, the dragon has lost, okay? He was not able to stop the child. The Messiah has come. He has died. It is finished. This, uh, it only stopped at verse 6 in your order of worship. Actually, want to continue on a little bit. Um, I realize uh, we don't have a few Bibles, so just listen. Uh, this is what it says in verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. 
So day and night before God, he has these accusations. But then it says, but they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. That's my sermon thus far. The great accuser and his accusations have been conquered. You can accuse all you want, Satan. Your accusations have been conquered by the blood of the lamb. Then verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That is where we are. Evil has been defeated, but evil will not go quietly into the night. Satan and his forces relate to God's people like a defeated Hitler after D-Day, hiding in a bunker, commanding final havoc in a war that he has lost. It's over. But the enraged enemy seeks as much destruction as possible before his final destruction. And he is destructive. He still tempts God's people. He still divides God's people. He still taunts God's people. He still distracts God's people. He still persecutes God's people. His aim is one and only one thing now. Hurt the ones that God loves. Which is you and me. He hates us. Because he hates our God. But make no mistake. God will have his final retribution. As sure as his first advent, so sure is his return and second advent. When that happens, we read in Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them. So the end of the story is Revelation 20. That's, that's when the consummation comes. And so it says the devil who had deceived them. So it hearkens all the way back to Genesis 3 where he deceived Adam and Eve and started this whole mess. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When Christ returns, he will not be a lowly infant in a manger. He will be a warrior upon a stallion and he will strike down his enemies. By the way, please, please, please do not be an enemy of Jesus Christ. Embrace him as a friend in his humble first advent before you face him as an enemy in the recompense of his second advent. On that day, he will cast Satan into everlasting destruction and God's people will be forever free of evil's tyranny. Oh, for the day when we will dance upon Satan's grave and toast to his destruction forevermore. But we're not there yet. Now, we wait. We wait upon the Lord. Like Israel of old, longing through those centuries for the first advent. Now we wait upon Christ's second advent. This is who we are, friends. We are not a people who have arrived. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city which is to come. We are a people of expectant longing. And I'm thankful for a pandemic to reorient ourselves around that truth that this is not our home if Satan is free to roam. And so we wait and we long and we yearn and we cry and most of all, we pray for the dragon to be slain. But as we wait, let's do so appropriately. Here's what I mean, closing application. Do not give to Satan a victory that is not his. Yes, he can still harm. And the scriptures are replete with warnings for us to be on our guard 
against his schemes, to put on the full armor of God, to resist him, all these things. But let me tell you what he cannot do. He cannot win. In this season of waiting, while we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, do not yield to Satan what does not belong to him. He can tempt you. He can persecute you. He can distract you. He can taunt you. He can whisper in your ear lies, but he cannot condemn you. So why are we giving to him the spoils of a victory he did not win? The cross has disarmed him. So why do we live as though, if he, as though he is armed with accusations that he does not have? He's lying to you, Christian. He's lying to you. Don't believe his lies. God knows there's nothing to condemn. Satan knows there's nothing to condemn. The only one doing the condemning is you and me. We now have become our great accuser. But my accusations of myself hold as much weight as Satan's, which is none. So why do we live our lives controlled by so much shame when in Christ there is literally nothing to be ashamed of? Why do we live our lives compelled, motivated by so much guilt when in Christ there is literally no guilt left? Why do we live our lives fearing God's disapproval when literally there is nothing to disapprove of? Why do we live our lives fearing God's condemnation when literally there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the battle has been won and you truly are free. Don't give Satan the reward of a victory he did not win. Give God the reward of the victory he did win. Live in the freedom of Satan's disarmament. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let me pray. Hasten the day, Lord Jesus, when this enemy that has tormented this world for far too long is cast into the fire of judgment that he deserves. Until then, Lord, guard our church from the evil one. Guard our families from the evil one. Guard our lives from the evil one. And fill us with a confidence, a brazen confidence, that these accusations, these lies that he whispers to us are lies and not true. Who is to condemn? Only you. And Christ Jesus has died. And so we celebrate our freedom from the accusations and tyranny of, Jesus, of, of Satan. And we pray for the protection of Jesus over our lives and community. And we look forward, Lord, to the day we feast over his demise. Until then, we come to this lesser feast that celebrates that you have died and you shall come again. Hasten the day, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.